Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. This week we continue with our modern livestock operations series, talking to another father and son duo who are at the top of their game in a few breeds, but particularly the Aberdeen Angus. John Elliott, Senior and Junior from Rawburn in the Scottish Borders. Thanks for speaking to me, gentlemen. Pleasure. Pleasure. And John Senior, I recall that you're quite a keen historian, is that right? I think you've researched your family going back to the 1500s. Yes, I am. Um, a lot of the research was done uh, in prior generations, but yes, I, I am very keen in history. And some of your immediate family have been farming in Cape Roth in the north, but you're from the borders originally, is that right? Yes, we're a border clan. We were originally border reapers. And actually, one of the farms that are still in the family, we've had for almost 200 years. We took the farm of Black Hawk near Galashiel in 1829. Uh-huh. So, no, we're really a border family. And the first farm we took in the north was in 1908. We had quite a few farms in the north as well as in the borders, but there were different members of the family and had them. What took the family that far north? Well, it was the profitable thing to, to be in. I remember asking my father, my great-grandfather was the one that expanded in a very big way. And I always wondered why I didn't take arable farms, which in my lifetime have always been much more profitable. Mm-hmm. And my father said that at that time, the big hill farms were the profitable ones. And he almost took an arable farm, but another big hill farm came up at the same time and he took that one instead. And I believe they bred a few Angus uh, up there, uh, going back the way, John? Yes, well, still do, uh, up at Balnakeel. Um I, I don't know when the Angus herd was founded, but not too long after they took the farm. And back in the borders, there was a Captain Elliot at Wedderley Castle. Is that your family? Was he a relative? He was my grandfather's eldest brother, uh-huh. Captain. Tom, he, he was known as, and he farmed up in the north. He lived up in the north for, for quite a long time. And in the wartime, he came out of some of the big farms like Ribigal, and he took Wedderley and also Thirlston Farm, which is not too far away near Roder. I, I was brought up at, at Rawburn Farm, which is a big hill farm in the Lammerl, which my father went into just after he was demobbed from the army after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. I actually gave up the tenancy of Roburn and took Rock's remains in 1993. And you are, your great-grandfather was John, I think your father was John, and you're John Elliot the fourth and fifth, you two guys, is that right? Yeah, yeah and there's a sixth as well. We know him as Jack, but he's John the sixth. Okay. The farm where you are now at Rock's remains, what sort of size of farm do we run there now, John? It's a 700 acre farm, but it's a low ground farm. Roburn, my house was at 920, and, and Rocks remains at 320, so entirely different sort of farm. Mm-hmm. When we took it, it, it was about two thirds arable, but because we're really more stockmen than cropping uh, farmers, we've sort of changed that. Now we have about 400 acres of grass and 200 and something or other of. Uh, Can I uh, talk about the Chiviots? I believe your family have been breeding North Country Chiviots for over a century, and you mentioned Black Hawk, which I think was your Tom Elliott. Would he be your uncle? Black Hawk is sort of the the family farm, I suppose, and my grandfather uh, bred Chiviots. In the first World War time, there was really only one breed 
and they were called the Cleveat. And my grandfather actually had the record price in 1920, sold the ram for 1200 Well, his son, Tom, who is my father's brother, he was the youngest brother, he inherited Black Hawk. And now Tom's son, Andrew, but he's the farmer of Black Hawk. And uh, still, uh, he has a share in Valnakil uh, and has uh, North Country Cheviots up there. I've never quite understood the divide between the North Country Cheviot and the South Country Cheviot because they all come from the Cheviot Hills there. Can you give me a sort of a quick precy of how the two uh, breeds got divided? Well, yes, they originally came from the Cheviot Hills, as you say, and in, uh, well, at the time of clearances, suppose would start about 1810 or something like that. Um, large numbers of Cheviot sheep went up the north of Scotland and they evolved into a slightly different type. They were very recognisably the same. And so in my early days, there were South Country Cheviots, which were mainly in the borders, and there were actually even two types of them. Uh, one type was based in the sort of Lockerbie area and the other in the Hoyk area, but now they've sort of almost merged to be together. Well, the North Country Cheviots, they went up these big hill farms and some moved to Caithness where they became more in by sheep and some moved back down to the borders. So you really had three distinct types of North Country Cheviot and still uh, there are three types today. Possibly the Caithness ones are not so numerous as what they used to be, but uh, when I was involved, they were very much big time. Uh -huh. And you were, as you said, involved. You successfully bred Chiviots yourself, uh, uh, John? Oh, well, we had odd moments of glory, I suppose. Um, <laughs> it was uh, a thing that was very interesting when we were in the hill farm, but uh, they really are an upland and hill sheep. And when we came to Roxburgh Mains, we left the Chiviots behind. Going back, your father would be running on the hill farm commercial cows and producing some pretty good show calves, I believe. There Would they, they be by a Charolais back then? Well, um, my father and my grandfather both crossed an Angus and a Shorthorn together, and that's how they bred their cows. Um, it was really me that started with the show calves. Used the Charolais bull latterly because the Angus and the Shorthorn calves were not selling well. And actually, most of the show calves are by the Charolais, but probably the best one I ever had was by one of my own breeding Angus bulls. And he went on. We used to sell a lot of show calves at Reston Market. And at that time, it was a very good market because people came up from Yorkshire. They, they had big money to spend. And uh, names you probably heard of, William Westerby and Cliff Hopwood and Bob Ricketts and Bert Verretti. These people used to spend big money, and uh, the, the, we actually three times had the, the highest price suckle calf sold at auction in the 1970s. Uh -huh. Doesn't seem very much now, two they made a thousand and one made 650. <laughs> and uh, some of them went to Smithfield, uh, but they really were getting too old but by the time Smithfield came around a year and a bit after the calf sales. But the best one we had was an Angus out of a Simmental cross cow, and he made a thousand when we sold him, and he was overall champion at the Great York Show. It's almost the only time at that time when a native breed was actually beat a continental, but he was the best one in my view that we had. Uh, my father used to go up to Reston and buy suckle calves, and he's judged the suckle calf show there, I think, a couple of times. Um, and I know he brought the show calf back one year because we won Kidderminster Fatstock Show with it maybe in 1971. Perhaps that was one of yours. It was a good market in its day.
Well, we had the ideal product, really, because the Charolais was very fashionable then, and really the mother had to have some Angus in it, you know, to get right. People uh, brought out show calves out of the Hereford Frisians and out of Blue Grey, but they never were quite the same, you know, and we just kind of cow that suited the Charolais, really. Mm -hmm. Um, and still does. As the show cattle to this day still needs that uh, that Angus in there. It does, but of course, a lot of the Angus cross cows now are getting much bigger, whereas at that time they were only about 450 kilos. Mm. And it was a very, very good cross, uh, a small cow and a, and a big uh, pool. We had to learn how the calf was the only thing we didn't really know about. <laughs> And can I move on? I, I know as a young man you took a Nuffield scholarship and we've spoken to a few Nuffield scholars on this podcast. And how did that help you? It helped me enormously. It, it was uh, stimulated by a visit with some friends to a place called the Y Plantation in uh, Maryland, in, in mm -hmm. the USA. A very, very famous herd, probably the most famous Angus herd in the world. Up to then, all the bulls had been sold privately. But they had a one-off bull sale because the owner of the herd, who was an industrialist called Arthur Houghton, mm -hmm. had given the herd to the University of Maryland, I think. Oh, yeah, they sold the bulls to finance the change over the operation. So that stimulated it. I got an Nuffield scholarship, and I spent uh, three months in North America, about half in Canada and about half in the United States. And I went to 51 herds of cattle. And, um, I just met some very enlightened people. And uh, it was just at the advent of the U.S. Angus Sire Evaluation Program. So I just could see that was the way forward. Uh, we've done a podcast on the Y uh, Plantation and the merits of Jim Lingle. And Jim Lingle was a recording man. He recorded every little detail he could he could find and long before computers. And, and uh, would that be where you've picked up some of your trait there? Because I believe you you recorded your Chiviot sheep. And uh, I'd be wrong to say you were fixated by recording uh, and figures. But uh, before you went into the into the Angus cattle, you understood the merits of, of writing everything down, I think. Well, if you're a suckled calf breeder, you sell everything by weight. And uh, that was a fairly critical thing to keep in mind. And uh, I wasn't really fixated by recording. We did record the Cheviot in a very basic way compared to what we do now. And, of course, computers did just that. So the records had to be pen and paper and uh, pretty tedious. But we, we did have a go at it anyway. But uh, everything was rudimentary to what came later. As you said, the, the Nuffield Scholarship got you on that start. And if we go back to the Angus breed, the Angus had been through a huge slump in the 80s in UK, and it's often attributed to the imports of the continental cattle. But it was more than that, wasn't it, that, uh, that they were their own destruction, weren't they? Well, they really forgot about the commercial market at home. There was unbelievably big money. If you just got it right for a bull for export to America or Argentine, you probably know about the bull made 60,000 guineas. Well, you could buy a, a good-sized farm for that. So mm -hmm. everybody was in that market. And there are a whole lot of reasons why the Angus did get smaller. I mean, I've heard various, but uh, um, there were a lot of reasons. But once it seemed to be a good thing, everybody thought that if you did a bit more of it, it became a better thing. Mm -hmm. and in effect, bred uh, into cattle that, that were just making no money at all for us. And uh, to make it worse, all the pedigree herds were overmanned. There would have maybe two stockmen and 30 cows and nurse cows. All these things that had no relationship with what we were doing. So yes, the Angus, and not just the Angus, the, the, the Herefords and the Shorthorns, who were other big breeds at the time, they were in a real mess. And it took a lot of time to sort it out because a lot of the herds were very highly inbred. And a lot of the outcross 
in from elsewhere like Canada and New Zealand, uh, they, they just bounced off them because, of course, they themselves were outcross bulls and they just didn't have the genetic strength really to have a big impact. They certainly did leave the door open for the Continentals coming in, as we said. But when you went into Angus, they, I would say they were starting to turn the corner a little bit, but still maybe not ready for the growthier type of bulls that, uh, that you were trying to breed. Well, there were. There were people before me. Uh, the McLarens were recording. These sort of people had a, a commercial outlook, but there were an awful lot of people that, that really didn't. And even when the type changed to, to, to the bigger kind, they weren't, the only good thing about them was that they were big instead of the fact that they had to be good cattle as well. So I certainly don't claim to be any sort of pioneer of it, but of course, uh, you know, we've kept doing it. But you did see yeah, the future with the growthier stock as, as those pioneers did. And looking at your own herd there at Rawburn, one of your earlier females would be a South Home cow and a South Home are a Canadian, I think. Isn't that where John Graham from Tangiers brought in the, the first imports into the UK? South Home at that time, which was in the early 1980s, was probably the most famous herd in Western Canada. And uh, they had an annual sale and I went to the sale and she was the top priced female there. She actually made three times what the, the next highest priced female made. And uh, she was really outstanding. And I was lucky because up to then, you could only import cattle from Canada that had Canadian parents. Well, she was the first one to be imported by American parents. By then, the best ones had moved down and were in the United States. Um, so th that was a stroke of luck. And the other stroke of luck was that embryo transfer was just coming in. It wasn't as sophisticated then as it is now, but it, it was just coming in. So instead of getting one calf a year from her, I got quite a few. So she went straight into an embryo transfer program when she came back in. And then w would you build your Angus herd purely on North American genetics from then on? Was it all coming from, from, from across the Atlantic or did you bring in some females from the UK side? Well, I mostly bred them up, and uh, we used both, really. It was very difficult to get a lot of the blood that you really wanted. Um, the, the reason was blue tongue was very much in people's mind. And if you wanted to get semen from a bull, you could only collect them in what they called the non-fly season, which was, I think, in January and February, where it was really, really cold. And the bull had to be in a AI stud with sort of fine wire netting all around about to stop any flies getting near him. Any privately owned bull, if you said to the owner, would you sell me some semen? He'd say, right, um, how much do you want? Oh, 100 straws. Well, it just wasn't worth his while to put a bull in, you know, for six months in an stud and have him not in the farm. So it was very difficult to get the bloodlines we wanted, but we were very lucky because there were two bulls that were absolutely top bulls that we managed to get semen from. One was Scotch Cap and the other was a bull called Rito 2100. And they, they were absolutely the best. But other than that, I, I just it was very difficult to get semen. But just using the two bulls initially and then gradually the regulations eased a little and we got into more productive bloodlines from other sources as well. And to clarify that, we're talking these bulls were in North America rather than in Canada and the blue tongue restrictions again, we're talking in America. Um, was Canada a bit easier to get bulls in or were they both on the same strain? Well, Canada was easier because of course it's a much colder place. Um, but there were parts of Canada that you couldn't get, um, the Okanagan and um, parts of British Columbia, you couldn't get bulls from this, even from there. But that wasn't where the good bulls were anyway. The, the, the best of the bulls were in Saskatchewan and uh, uh, Alberta and maybe some in Manitoba.
October. We could get semen from there. Not not easily, but we, we could get some. But uh, really, the bulls that were wanted were actually in the States. And John Jr., if, if I can bring you in here, you went to Canada or based there for a while. Was that similar time or a little bit later? No, it was quite a bit later. Um, I finished university, and when I came back uh, home, it, it was kind of a good time for me to maybe uh, go away for a few years. And, uh, well, it was originally supposed to be for six months, but um, I was lucky I went out to Alberta where I went to work with Doug Robertson at the Coldstream Herd, which at the time was exporting a lot of genetics into the UK. And I went and uh, worked with Doug in the morning at Coldstream. And then in the afternoon, I went to work for an embryo transfer station called Davis Reardon. So, yeah, that that was back in uh, the early... uh, 2000s you know that that I went across and you know it can open my eyes a little bit more to you know embryo transfer and the the exporting of genetics back to uh, the UK. Okay so we're talking a little bit later because I think when your father is talking there some of these earlier bulls were probably still back in the in the late 80s early 90s aren't we and some of those um, uh, good bulls that you mentioned scotch cap there and there was a few more as well wasn't there Uh, John T.C. Stockman um, Hoff Limited Edition, would those be around about the same time or later? They came later. You know, that they, was... they were in the time I was there, Andy. Oh, cool. Well, I brought in most of those genetics for the Robin Herd. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and I and I know the, the US had been through the frame race, as Dr. Bob uh, refers to it, but uh, the Americans were coming down in size and these bulls were started to get generally different to the, the leggier Canadian types. So there was a gap between them, wasn't there, John? Well, they were sort of the same. Uh, the show ones got very, very leggy, but out in the prairies, people really just had commercial herds and uh, the show bulls, and they didn't move the same way as the show lines did. But there's no question that bulls that were getting shown were almost like Kianinas at one point. They had their day, but people got they saw through them, really. There were too many problems with them. Yeah, they were certainly, again, has been discussed earlier on these podcasts that uh, some of them have got uh, ridiculous. Uh, and as you said, the Kianini was introduced in those. Uh, can we move on to a bull and uh, uh, John called Rawburn Transformer? Uh, he was well named by transforming uh, whatever he bred. And he was bought, I believe, as an embryo. And he's a T. So when are we going back to, was that be 1997? Is that right? He, he was born in 1997. You've had Dave Nichols on previous podcasts, but I just thought his herd of cattle when I saw him and my Nuffield scholarship were absolutely outstanding. So initially, I got a bull from Oren Hart from the Willabar herd mm-hmm. with some of his breeding. Well, Oren and I were friends, and when I was there, I saw a very, very good cow by a bull called GT Maximum, and he was tired by Scott Cap. I would say he was. The, the, probably the highest performing bull in the world at the time, but he had a, an other advantage. His gestation length was very short, and he was a relatively low birth weight bull, and certainly very, very much lower birth weight bull than any bull of his performance. So Oren had this very, very good cow by GT Maximum, and I persuaded him to uh, flush her to a, a bull called Hoff Great Western, who I think about $300,000, and he hadn't quite as much performance as GT Maximum, but he was just another outstanding bull. So that's where Transformer came from. And he bred exceptionally well for you. Didn't he sire something like 1,600 calves or so? Is there there still semen around from Transformer? I'm sure it's probably still in demand, is it? Uh, 
There, there is a little bit, but it's being very scarce. We maybe have a few straws, but not too <laughs> Not that you want to sell. That's fair enough. No, I, I remember um, talking to Henry Durwood, and I believe he'd seen Transformer and said, as an older bull, and said what a, an exceptional bull he was, and uh, he lived on, didn't he? And uh, a great beast. Yeah, Henry's a great friend of uh, ours, and uh, he brought out bulls for me initially, and uh, we've kept up the connection, and yes, he had a little bit to do with them, and mm. it was nice. If, if he thinks he's a good bull, he must have been fairly decent. He's uh, He's been around a while, as Henry, I hope he's well. And uh, with the Rawbone Herd, in reference to your brand, Mark, under the motto, the performance goes in before the brand goes on, Rawbone evolved into one of the top Angus herds in Europe over the next decade or two, and, and, and still are. Yeah, the brand is actually a family mark. We, we used to put that in the sheep with the North Country Cheviots, which have a white face. We'd put a uh, heart mark on the cheek. It was about the size of a 20 pence coin. So we had a bigger one. We called them a bist, but I think in the North it's pronounced bust, which is stamped on the wool of the sheep after they were shorn. The heart was on all the sheep we had. Uh, I don't know how we got it. I wish I'd asked my father before he died if he knew how we got it. Really, in border history, the heart is the motto of the Douglas clan, because of course the Black Douglas took Robert de Bruce's heart to the Holy Land, or he tried to, didn't get there. And uh, so I, th I don't know how we appropriated it from them, but we've kept it anyway ever since. It certainly does signify a mark of quality as well as making your cattle easily identified. Moving on with yourselves, early bulls, uh, Robin Duke, seem to remember Ian Anderson having him, would I be right? And then there was uh, the E.T. brothers of uh, Rommel and Rochester, which I think Rommel went to phrases of Idviz and Rochester went to Eastfield. And your bulls were in big demand then and, and, and doing well for people. There was another bull, Rock Solid, and he went down uh, to... to uh, and uh, we actually kept what we thought was the best one. He was a bull called Robert Randolph, and of all the bulls we ever had, he's really one of my favourites. He, he was uh, just an outstanding breeder, and we never managed to get semen from him. We did on one occasion, and we sent it by post to get processed, and there was a postal strike, and by the time it arrived, it was past it. Oh, dear. But we never had another sample because he got an infection in his testicles and that was really the end of him. So he was just an outstanding bull. And of all the bulls we ever had, um, we tried to concentrate on uh, keeping temperament good, but his offspring were just unbelievably quiet. They, they were the best in my time anyway that, that we ever had. And we mentioned Rommel and, and Rochester, you're saying that's out of the same flush. And what um, what was the breeding in those, uh, John, for our, for our Agnes well, listeners? Uh, they were by Hoff Limited Edition. And uh, John, what was the mother? Well, the mother came out of the Prairie Lane herd, a cow called uh, Prairie Lane Rosebud 011. When, when I was over in Canada, a lot of the herds I went to, what we found was you'd, you'd go and you'd see an animal you like and you'd ask, you, you know, what the breeding was. And you, you're often told that it was out of a, a heifer that was purchased for, you know, very little money out of a, a program called Prairie Lane. It was a herd in Manitoba. So I kind of put two and two together and also noticed that most of the highest performance cattle in uh, Canada were coming out of this herd. So it was a good distance from where I was based in, in Alberta, but I took the time to go out to Manitoba and see this herd. And uh, the owner of it was a, a chap called Blaine Canning, 
who um, he, he was a very nice chap, but absolutely believed in numbers. And he also had a ruthless culling program. If anything came out, you know, didn't wean a calf. If anything didn't get in calf, if it had bad feet, it was just culled automatically. But um, really his measure of greatness was, was simply on numbers and production. So what we found is when, when you went into his herd, you would find a lot of cattle that had quite a few structural problems or things that you, you didn't really like. But sometimes he would just get everything right. The animal would have perfect numbers. She would look the part and she was producing beyond really uh, how you would expect. And when I went there, the, the one cow that stood out was the mother of Rommel. She was a, um, she'd weaned, I think, twice the heaviest uh, calf of her year. And, you, you know, she was really a terrific cow. But one of the things that was really, although he had a terrific product, Blaine Canning, he was quite possibly the worst marketer of cattle I've ever met in my life. <laughs> His bull sale was so low key that it just didn't generate much money. But whenever his cattle went into other herds, they did exceptional things. So that day we, we bought three cows um, from uh, Blaine Canning, very modest money. But everyone had a very big impact with us. But without doubt, uh, Prairie Lane Rosebud 011 was the, the, the best. She uh, she bred Rommel, Rock Solid, Randolph. Um, she bred a bull called Ravovo that made 10,000. Uh, Belhaven Rousseau, who was female champion at the Highland Show. Um, and I think in, she still is the cow that has more progeny than any other cow in the UK herd book. I think she's got 103. Wow. Uh, really, she, she, she did a great job. And as I say, the guy just maybe Blaine Canning, it was just a real lesson to me that, mm. you, you know, you have the best product in the world, but, you, you know, you have to be able to get out there to the, the wider public to, to get its full value. Sure. And going back to uh, Rommel, I believe, did you keep a share of Rommel? I think he bred 600-odd calves. At the time, that was the first wave of the Hoff Limited Edition cattle. And usually with Hoff Limited Edition, at the time I was working at Coldstream Angus, I went down to Denver um, really for a look. I wasn't working at the time uh, for any of the show teams or anything. I just went to see the, the show. And I remember being down in the yards in Denver where people have their big displays. And I remember turning a corner and I just saw these two bulls in front of me. And they absolutely took my breath away. Uh, I can still remember it really clearly. And one was Bull Hoff Limited Edition and the other one was his, his sire, a bull called Hoff Charger. And I remember, I think it was like in early 20s, running to a public payphone to phone my dad <laughs> to say that I'd seen these bulls. And uh, I remember it was quite funny, but dad told me, you know, I told him about this Hoff Limited Edition. I said, we'll have to get this bull or get something off him. And dad, you know, he kind of laughed. But anyway, he did say, look, go and see what you can do, you know, with the idea of trying to buy him. Well, I went to see Doug Hoff, who'd sold bulls for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And Here's this young lad, you know, you know, really interested. And he's very good. He humored me, but uh, we weren't ever going to be able to buy the bull. But we did manage to get semen. And uh, that was the first wave was of the, the offspring. Was uh, we, we produced the bull, Echester, another one, uh, Rommel, uh, obviously came through. Another one we used ourselves uh, as, as well, uh, called Ex um, Extra, I think his name was. But they were the first crop of Hoff Limited Editions. And um, as I say, Rommel was maybe the star. And as I say, Alistair Fraser, when he came down, 
um, he, he was very keen to get the ball anyway, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I remember speaking to Alistair about that, and yes, keen he was. I think it was quite a negotiation you guys went through. Um, and over the next few decades, uh, Robin moved on, and for all you were selling bulls at Stirling and Perth, you st- started a, a system of selling your bulls at home, and I know that sounds easy, and it certainly would be more profitable when they, they don't need the feeding and pampering up for the sales, and also you'd sell them much younger as well. So, uh, But you must have a lot of loyal customers. How, how did that come about, and what number of bulls do you produce now uh, annually? Well, originally we only had a few pure cows at that time, and we sent any good bull calves up to Henry Durward, and they made an absolute first-rate job. And we actually took up Perth one year and a second top another year, and I think maybe third top another year. So these were, were young bulls we were selling, and um, we were, um, seemed to be getting on fine. But if you got a champion, you might have got 4,000 at that time. But even first prize winners, the Angus was so unpopular then, sometimes you would 1500 or 1600 well because i could allocate every cost because i didn't bring them out myself and things so we knew all the costs staying hotels commissions all these levies things um, it was actually working out at 819 pounds for every bull that was sent up so i had to get that more in perth than what i got at home uh-huh. well it really wasn't viable I, I, probably now it would i would have done something different but the angus nobody wanted them and they were just uh, um, you know, they're going to lose my money if, if I sold them that way. So that's how I started selling. But of course, it's just gone on from there. And um, it is nice that people keep coming back. Yeah. And there will be, as I said, loyal customers. And I think they come, yeah, you, you offer them other products as well now, which we'll talk about. But some of these guys will be coming back and they'll be buying bulls from you for a couple of decades now. Commercial men and pedigree men as well. Yeah, well, both, but, uh, you know, some of them have bought over 20 bulls from us mm-hmm. over the year, and uh, it's, we really appreciate that, and that was always the driver, and it's nice when the pedigree men come along now, but initially I never really dreamt that they ever would, you know, it was just sort of different scene that we're in. And from what number of Angus bulls would you be producing now annually for sale? Well, last year, we, altogether, we sold 127 bulls, mm-hmm. um, of which I think 112 were Angus. Right. Um, predominantly, most of our bulls are sold into suckler herds. Um, we do sell some into pedigree herds, obviously, but the, the majority are to suckler herds and um, commercial herds. And uh, and I think the last time we looked at it, it was somewhere about 75 to 80% of our bulls are sold to repeat custom repeat customers yeah and do these guys get the first pick of the bulls are these the guys that have been buying from you regularly do they get a pick of all the bulls or do you keep a few on one side for the when the pedigree men turn up or we've got them in different pens for different price brackets or how does it work no um it's it doesn't really work like that the way we work is that when the bulls come off test at 12 to 13 months of age we, we assess the bulls mainly on how they look i think a lot of people would think it was just on numbers it's not it's really mostly on how they look but we tend to find the bulls often are the most impressive, have the best numbers, as you would hope they should be. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we, we put a, a value on every bull. And then, you, you know, as people have said that they want to come and pick a bull, they're invited back in that order um, to, to come and have a look. And when they arrive, they, we give them a sheet with all the, the bull's data, like his pedigree data, his performance data, but also it has the price of the bull on the sheet. Okay. So they're aware. um, And I think a lot of people think just all the best ones would go first, but they don't really. 
you, you tend to find it's a real mixture because people are coming in with different budgets. Uh -huh. um, and so that we don't have that awkward moment of somebody picking the highest price bull but having a budget that can't achieve that, you, you know, by having the value on the bull already, people are, uh, you know, picked to what, what they can afford. And it, it's the method that we've used for, for a long time and uh, it works very well. That's incredible. And you have a price tag basically hanging from every bull. But obviously the people that are coming back to buy from you wouldn't be coming back if they thought you were selling them one at the wrong price that was the wrong bull. So, you, again, a, a huge element of trust in, in, in that. But uh, sounds like it's working. I think, you know, all the time we're always looking out for what will help the customer make more money you know that that is our driver and we do all these things like performance record and things and everything has to be done accurately because people have to get the results they expect as you rightly say if they don't they'll move to another program to buy their bulls so um, we can't have any surprises our bulls have to do and because there, there are large numbers of bulls you know treated identically um, you know people can make accurate judgments on what that animal do compared to other bulls in the same sure. group these bulls have been treated identically since birth. So if a bull's 100 kilos heavier, it's because he was able to do it. Yeah. And we would hope that he would transmit most of that into his progeny. And most of our customers understand that. I'm sure. And it's about having enough numbers of bulls to be able to do that, I understand. And obviously, you'll have a, a lot of females, too. And uh, you sell a lot of females at home as well. I mean, you, I know you pitch a few in into sterling markets, for maybe for the showtime. But uh, you sell a lot of females at home. And again, selling by reputation and depth of breeding, people will be coming to you to pick up some pedigree heifers to, to go on and start new herds. And that's happened quite a few times, hasn't it? Yes. Um, the, the reason we always put females into the public auction was that uh, just to let people see our name more than anything else, you know, uh, just to let people see our genetics, what they can do. So we did do that for really about 10 years and, uh, you, you know, putting in heifers out of our breeding stock, you know, to show what our cattle can do. And we, we had one or two high prices out of those heifers. But you're right, we, we sell quite a large number of heifers every year privately. But a lot of those in the last few years have been going abroad. Most of them go into mainland Europe. And currently, just as it stands, uh, it's very difficult due to Brexit. The, the, the checkpoints at Cali have not been opened. So the, the European market hasn't been there this year, uh, or it has been, but we can't get, actually get the cattle abroad at this moment in time, which is quite frustrating for both our customers and obviously for us too. We'd like to get them moving. Of course, so that will maybe leave you with a surplus of heifers for people to come and uh, come and buy in the UK. Hopefully, those barriers will be shifted, and that's a whole political debate that I, we don't want to get into right now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, with regards to showing, this podcast was always developed around the, the, the show circuit, and you guys showed a few times, but you don't really show yourselves, but your stock shows in other people's hands, and I mean that's a. Yeah, the Royal Ben Prefix would have racked up numbers of wins at the Highland shows and other shows, and uh, they're doing your advertising for you, aren't they? Um, yeah, it's, the show thing's never really been our scene, but the last couple of years, you know, a lot of the, the major shows, actually, I think the four major shows for Aberdeen Angus Cattle in the UK, um, I think in two separate years, more class winners and champions were actually sired by Robin Bread Bulls than actually all other bulls put together. Mm -hmm. So um, so we, we get a huge amount of enjoyment out of seeing other people do well with their cattle. Um, I often hear guys say, you know, you, you know, they're disappointed that they've maybe sold a, a heifer that's gone on and bred something at big money for somebody, or likewise a gibber, you, you know, in the sheep world. But 
I think that's the best advertising we've ever had. You know, when we sell something or breed something that does well for somebody, because usually they come back and uh, look for another one and uh, and do the same again. Absolutely, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? And John, moving on to I say your own business, you you set yourself up sort of back up in in the beginning of this century to start trading genetics back and forth across the Atlantic uh, uh, embryos and semen and that. Tell me a bit more about that. Did you actually have your own animals on programs in the US? Um, when I first went to to Canada, um, as I said, I was working for um, for Coldstream Angus and at the time the type that was in Canada was very much popular here in the UK as well you know the, the two types were very similar at the time I was there and Coldstream Genetics were doing very well for Neil Massey in particular at uh, Blellock and uh, Bob Lane at Penguin he, he'd imported quite a lot of these genetics too and done very well in the mornings I would work for Doug and feed his cattle and, and everything else and then in the afternoon I would I would go and work at Davis Reardon Embryo Transfer Station so um, when was at the shows, a lot of British and Irish co- were coming across at that time. And, you know, the, the way to take the genetics back were through embryos. So I started acting a little bit as a middleman. Just, um, you know, if somebody had taken embryos, I would try and market them back to the UK. And th- that kind of grew steadily. But um, I could see that really to move it on a further step, I was going to have to own the whole process. So... At that point, that's when I started to look for donor cows with the, the real aim of, first of all, putting genetics into the Rawburn herd, but likewise selling surplus embryos to other programs. And that's how I started uh, my business, Bovagen, the, the early start of the, of the, the 2000s there. And you'd be shifting those not from the US, not just into the UK, but uh, possibly worldwide. Yeah, it did. It developed into a really quite a big uh, business. Probably... The, the, the holdback for it was that it was so dependent upon myself. It, it was very difficult to find somebody that could come in to take over and, and do what I was doing because a lot of it was down to people invested in my judgment. Mm-hmm. And so as more things came on my plate, like, a, you know, the gradual coming into the Robin program and working here. And then also I, I took over another business, uh, the Gordon Brook Estate. Um, at that point, the definitely the thing that suffered was uh, Bovagen Limited, which was a very good business. And I have real regrets over that. I wish you, you know I, I could have somehow kept that going. But um, as I say, there was other things, other priorities that took over from there. The chapters in your life, and I'm sure you learned greatly from them. And going back to uh, the Robin Hood on performance recording, um, you've consistently had... I'd say the most cows in the top index range uh, for decades, uh, John, would I be right? Well, yes, yes, we, we did, and we still have. I mean, you can dial up bull calves, heifer calves, heifers, whatever you'd like to and do, yeah. You've studied and in some cases pioneered additional recording. Have you monitoring figures for locomotion, genotyping for disease, uh, various other things? And there's a lot of other... other... Uh, things that can be recorded, and and we talked about uh, the, you know, why plantation recording those going a long way back. But how does these how do these additional traits marry with the standard set of performance figures that the the breed generally uses? Well, not uh, um, getting the chap from the Holstein Society to come and look at locomotion. Um, we did that because we we're always hearing criticism, not not particularly of our own cattle, but just of cattle in general that they couldn't walk like they used to, and all that. Well, all my life bad walking and good walking cattle. So if we got this, uh, we came very well out of that. But a lot of the things that were actually 
looking at now can't be assessed visually, things like feed conversion and um, easy carving, these sort of things. With regards to the, the things that we, we think generate the, the most profit, I suppose, in any commercial program, is definitely getting your cows and calves, first and foremost, then getting the calf out alive, unassisted, and then having the calf grow as quickly as it can to, to slaughter weight. So we, we, that's always been our kind of target to, to produce cattle that do that. Um, we like to think they're also visually attractive, and that's you know, one of the things that, you know, in the show ring, when other people do well, that we like to think, you know, that it displays that our cattle are, are, are desirable that way too. But we had to look at the next step. And really, the thing that we've, we've wanted to get into for, for years was feed efficiency. We knew how it worked. I mean, the principles are very simple. But it, it was just the sheer cost of getting into um, being able to monitor that. So, um about five years ago, we priced putting in a system to monitor the feed efficiency in, at Rawburn, but the, the cost was so huge that we, we didn't really see a, 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 we, we could get that money back. So the way we looked at it was the, the best way for us to do it was let somebody else in maybe North America, which were definitely five, ten years ahead of us, do the work and then tap into their genetics. And so we kept a very close eye of what was happening in, in the U.S., especially at uh, places like the Midland Bull Test Center and see the bulls that were performing very well. We had a lot of eyes and ears on the ground across there that were telling us, you know, what they were seeing. One of the, the guys that's definitely, you know, really keeping a very close eye on this and, and a guy that we uh, we trust a lot that way was Dave Nichols. Um, and... You know, we, we kind of took some guidance from him and went across and looked at his program. And um, we, we started to see a picture of which cattle were doing very well for feed efficiency. So that was the easiest way for us to initially start to, to look at that. But um, in recent years, as you, some might have read, we've installed a system to measure feed efficiency. Um, it's a large investment. It's singly the largest investment of any piece of machinery we've, we've ever bought. Um, but without doubt, the, the data it's, it's delivering to us is, can be measured no other way. And, and it, I think it's going to be invaluable to, to the future of our herd. Can you give me an idea of what the equipment involves? Yeah, um, what it is, is um, when the bulls are, are housed through the winter time, they're, they're put on to um, a complete ration, an oat-based ration predominantly. But um, the, the feeding's put into, um, into feed bunks, which have weigh scales underneath them. And the animals would have an EID tag. So when they put their head in to eat, it, it weighs the, what, what the weight of feeding in the feed bunk. So when the animal starts eating, it gets weighed. And then when the animal pulls out, through the, it measures it again, the, the, the weight that's left in the bunk. Uh -huh. And the difference is then allocated to that animal. So that's how much it's eaten in weight. It's calculated into dry matter. And then every time the animal goes to drink, there's a scales that it weighs itself. So the animal uh, is weighed around seven times a day, and it, it usually goes to the, the, the feed bunk uh, between six and eight times a day. So um, th they're on trial for around 50 days. And over that time, the total amount that they eat and the total amount of weight gain is measured and in turn, um, the, the company GrowSafe, who uh, get all the data sent live streamed across to the to, across to Canada, um, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, at the end of it, they produce a report that shows us how each bull 
compares against each other, but also they're able to also show us how they compare against other cattle around the world, which is great and all breeds too. So you compare you can compare an Angus to a Limousin to a Charley. That makes no difference. It's just simply how much did they eat and how much did they gain. That's incredible forward-thinking technology. And, and where do you see the, the profit in that from yourselves? Is this something we're doing for the good of the of the breed and the world, or is this, this bringing, it's bringing the pennies back in from your investment? Well, I think it all ties in. There's different things. Uh, the first is that um, we're, we're hoping that it's going to reduce our feed bill, which mm-hmm. is... You know, we're going to be able to, and ultimately our customers, their their progeny are going to be, it's highly heritable um, feed efficiency. It's, it's like growth. And we, we find that, you know, we're hoping obviously that our customers are going to be able to produce cattle that, uh, you know, we're able to get to water weight quicker. The the daughters of these bulls, because we found are on numerous trials now that, that animals aren't just, you know, feed efficient. They're, they're actually energy efficient. So if an animal does well on, on feeding, it'll do well on, on grass. That, that's been proven. So we're hoping that the, the daughters of these bulls should go on and you know be able to produce more kilos of beef on the same or even less acres of grazing too. Um, and then the other thing, which I think is going to become a bigger part, is we're going to also find that um, the environmental benefits are at least being seen to be trying to make a difference environmentally it, it's something most farmers were not very in tune to and certainly wasn't our primary driver when we did it but there's no doubt it's uh, becoming uh, something we'll have to really look very closely at and especially as an industry that's fascinating and do you see these figures evolving and maybe merging into the current set of ebv epd figures that we have at the moment and, and sort of how do they compare how do they marry up against each other I think they're very complementary. I think any data that goes in and can be processed already in North America and in Australia, I believe, already that data is going into the EPDs and, and EBVs of, of cattle. I think it's it, it's terrific. And, and it, it's the one area that I think um, last year, the average for all our bulls at, at 400 days of age for every bull was 712 kilograms. Um, so... I don't know if we'd really want to get our growth rates any higher. Uh, what we found, we, we did actually have a couple of bulls that really pushed growth higher than that, uh, maybe going back about 10 years ago. But what we found, Andy, was we started to get, you know, there was there was minuses to, to getting cattle with that growth rate, mainly in the area of fertility. Um, you know, we could get their heifers and calf, but we, once the heifers were nursing, we struggled to get them back in calf. Mm-hmm. So we had to pull it back slightly. And by doing that, you, you know, we now have to look at how we can make more profit out of our cattle. And the obvious thing was to, to look at the feed efficiency of and the efficiency of our cattle. Absolutely, it's the less you put in. It's highly interesting and something I'm sure a lot of people are, are watching from around the world. Um, if I can just move back to the, the raw bone herd and its origins, um, by 2003, I think you bought a bull, Wedderly Netmark, for 25,000, the highest price bull for a good few decades. And uh, you'd be no stranger to, to buying the top price bulls. I mean, they're not expensive if they're the right ones, are they? Well, if, I think four times I bought the highest price bull at Perth and Stirling over the last 15 years. So, yeah, we, we do invest in British blood as well. And 
we're always looking out at any time for something new and better that we think will improve our own stock wherever we can find it. 2004, you expanded by buying the Huxton Angus herd? Well, they were actually almost pure uh, Roburn blood. Uh, they'd used one outside bull, but everything else was ours. And uh, the owner of the herd, Frederick Tate, died uh, unexpectedly. Oh. And so uh, we bought the herd then and expanded without actually having to go outside our own bloodlines. Uh, a little bit later, a cow, uh, Hoff Blackbird, uh, joined Roburn at a big price. I think, was she successful? Possibly the best herd of cattle I, I ever was lucky enough to witness was the Hoff Scotch Cap herd um, in uh, South Dakota. And um, we, we traveled over and uh, well, actually I was in Canada at the time and I drove down and met up with my father at the dispersal. They actually had two dispersals, uh, but the first dispersal was probably, the, you know, just the greatest set of Angus cows I would we'd ever seen. And this female, she was a heifer at the time. We, we, we really wanted to buy her. But um, I think that day she made $48,000 and we, we, we didn't actually buy her that day. And it was with quite a bit of regret. I know she was the one female that when we left that sale, we, we, we'd bought some terrific females, including a cow, Hoff Ebony, that, that had a really big impact. But um, that was the one female that I think kind of stuck in our throat a little bit. But luckily, um, well, luckily for us, anyway, um, the, the, the place that did buy her decided to disperse about four or five years later. And um, we, we saw that she was up for sale. And I, I phoned actually the, the sales manager and I said, well, what, what's this cow going to bring? You know, because we couldn't go over. We knew how good she was, but we couldn't go over. And by this time, the market was, you know, the type for the, the popular cattle was getting a, a lot smaller. And uh, this cow isn't a small cow. She, you know, she, she'd be a big, powerful cow. And I remember saying to the sales manager, what's she going to bring? And he said, well, she's got a calf inside, so she'll probably bring about $5,000. <laughs> so anyway, I phoned dad. I said, I think we might be able to steal this cow out of here. And uh, anyway, so we, we kind of braced that we're, you know, going to go and just try and get her this time. Well, uh, anyway, I think the bidding started at about 12000 We ended up getting her for, I think, $28,000. So... So uh, the sales manager, you know, either was playing his cards close to his chest or uh, he just didn't have a clue. But uh, anyway, so we, we've got her and she's had a huge impact. We, um, she, she bred Boss Hog, who's been our highest uh, semen sales bull for, for four years and uh, really been a terrific uh, bull for us. He's a TC Freedom son. She bred a bull called Brawl Ad, who um, we used a couple of years here and we sold on to the Rules Mains herd. And he, uh, he had two of the high-priced bulls there and uh, Sterling off that bull in, in February. But uh, her influence, you know, uh, female-wise too, has been been terrific for us. So, uh, and really started a great line. And, uh, we're, we're, yeah, she, she's been a, an outstanding cow. So you got lucky, but not as lucky as you'd like to have done. And, no, no. And later, John, you took over the Linton Gilbertines herd from Gordon Brook, as you'd been advising for a while then until he sadly died. And, yeah, how many cows came in from there? And did you still run those? Un you still run those under that prefix, don't you? Um, yeah, well, when we first met Gordon Brook, uh, it was back in the early 2000s gordon was farming down in uh, yorkshire and uh, he, he bought a couple quite high-priced females from us and uh, just to make sure that he you know he he did well with the females we, we kept in touch and we, we encouraged them to send his his better cattle up to richard retty so they were prepared properly 
and uh, in turn we became very good friends with Gordon and um, in his later life he, he was in the early 80s he, he approached me about uh, managing his if he brought his cattle up into the borders would I manage them for him and uh, he, he moved his entire herd up uh, about 20 miles from us at uh, Gordon and uh, I started to manage his herd and uh, then unfortunately he only had another couple of years before he passed away and uh, he he left his his farm and his cattle and trust to carry on as they had been already so that's how the herd developed at the time we, we there was about 70 pedigree cows but it's now up to about 150 cows so it didn't really compete you know a different customer base or our aim was always to sell the, the best bulls, certainly, and most of the bulls through public auction from that herd. And that's what we've done to this point anyway. But we actually changed the name of the, the, the prefix of the herd after Gordon's death to the Gordon herd. Uh, obviously, the, there was two reasons behind that. One was it was Gordon Brook, but also um, the, the nearest village is also called Gordon. Gordon so. It made sense, but it, it also shortened the, the length of the names that we had to write out for the cattle. So, but, um, It was a very difficult time when we took over the, the herd, um, numerous things to, to sort out. But um, it was a great honour because, you, you know, really Gordon Brook handed over his legacy at that point. And, you, you know, it's really important for us anyway that, you know, we carry it on and, and it just goes from strength to strength. And it has done, you, you know, that herd's had a huge amount of success in the last few years, which... Um, we, we must say it has no small part to play by the, the, the stockman Ian Campbell up there, who's um, we're, we're very lucky with the, the staff we have here at uh, on both farms. We have Ian and Logan Campbell, who are both very well known in the pedigree sector and and do fantastic work. And I think between them, they've got so many championships. You know, it's uh, it's great and and so many high sellers. And then we also have another chap that uh, does a lot of the unsung kind of work a bit here at uh, Roburn, a guy Ian Lansborough and just really on top of his game and you know so we're really really lucky with those guys you know they, they just absolutely um, make sure we, we get the results and that, that, that's great. And uh, back at Roburn as demand grew from your commercial customers you added a herd of limousine cattle at Roburn a few years back and although they're sidelined compared to your Angus you expanded the herd by ET and have a regular supply of bulls for sale. What can you tell me about that breed? I'm trying to remember, it'd be about seven or eight years ago we started the limousines and, uh, you know, we, we're we really looking at uh, a lot of our, our customers for the Angus, uh, the other breed that they used was the limousine. And um, we, we decided, well, first of all, to actually go into maybe a few black limousines. But um, we, we started to try a few reds and we don't have a huge number of them. We only have, uh, between both farms, we only really have about 20 females. But um, again, we kind of developed into more of a private selling market and uh, we use a lot of AI in, in, the, in the limousine and, um, you know, try to breed bulls that will be relatively easy calving too. So so that, that was really the driver just to, to maybe meet the demand of some of the other uh, bulls that our customers were looking for. Customers, I guess, were also looking for shorthorns because uh, recently in came a shorthorn herd and they're a fashionable breed at present and a breed which has a good purpose on a hill but would you be supplying short on bulls as well to these regular clients coming in yes um that that really started more i've got to be honest as a little bit of a, a, a hobby um when i was over in canada i, I was actually judging an interbreed breed and I, I saw um what i thought was one of the best beef cows i'd ever seen a cow called df starlet and uh, 
she really took my breath away. She's a two-year-old with just an outstanding calf at side and beautiful udder and type. I thought at that time, the, the, the Canadian shorthorns, I liked them better. I thought they had a little more muscle in them, a little more muscle shape and uh, slightly better udder quality. Um, I thought also that they didn't carry quite as much external fat, you know, at the tail head and at the brisket. And um, so I was, I was really taken with this female and that's where it kind of started. So I bought her with an intention of selling embryos from her. And, uh, you know, we popped one or two in for ourselves and then uh, we bred a couple bulls that did okay at Stir- well, Perth at the time. Um, and in turn, actually, one of them went on to win the championship at the Highland Show. So that's where it started. And again, it, it allowed us to service, uh, you know, some of our customers who were looking for bulls too. We, we could supply them. But we, we, I enjoy the shorthorns a lot. I think they're a really nice breed. But um, we, we've maybe gone more down the, the Canadian type of shorthorn than maybe more of the British bloodlines. Mm, but the shorthorns certainly are hot property, especially with a huge demand for females. And you hit the headlines last year selling a heifer for 15,000. And I think you hold the female breed record. So you might be playing at it, but you're playing fairly well at it. I think um, it was a breed where people are like the Angus too are looking for outcross genetics. And if somebody's willing to take that extra step and, and bring in something new, so long as it's good, uh, I've brought in plenty of stuff that hasn't been good enough and it's not achieved the prices. But sometimes you, you get lucky and, and, as I say, guys looking for an outcross, but also something good. And, yeah, hopefully the, the, the price, you know, some higher prices come with it. And, and let's move on to talk about the sheep. You run a flock, flock of Texels and Suffolks, I believe, under the Roxburgh prefix and uh, produce a big pen of tups for Kelso. And uh, you don't have far to take them to stay on the road. Um, apart from when they moved the sale to Lanark, which would be a bit of inconvenience. And how many of those do you run? How many ewes do you run there? The Texels were running around about uh, 120 ewes. We mostly top them normally. You know, we're naturally, we're not, uh, we don't TI at uh, Roxburgh Mains. Um, so we, we do that. And uh, with the Suffolks, we're running around about 100 Suffolk ewes. Um, the, the, the Suffolks would be a mixture of, of British and New Zealand genetics. Um, I think maybe about 15 years ago, we, we made the decision that we had to do something with our Suffolks. We were really quite labour intensive. And um, if we didn't change the genetics or change our breeding policy, we we're probably going to put them off, I would think. So really, as a kind of last resort, we, we put the New Zealand genetics in and we saw huge advantages very quickly, especially... Um, down to vigour at birth, uh, ability to lamb, milking ability. Um, so th- that, that was the direction we went with them. So we, most of the shearlings we sell would be 50% high-performance UK genetics and 50% New Zealand genetics and for us. Yeah. Then they still go through Kelso. Is there demand for the New Zealand genetics in Kelso? Yeah, the, the, there has been. A, it's been fantastic, you know, and I think just the, the drive, a little like our Angus, there's just less labour on the farms and less, you know, people want to have to, to intervene with, with any problems. So, you, you know, it, it, it did uh, work well. And also with the Suffolks, there's, there's more and more Suffolk crosses getting kept for females. And the New Zealander definitely offers a great deal with that. But there's certainly not, of the type that that really we, we're perfectly aware that they, they wouldn't suit the, the the market of the the rams that are sold at sterling and these sort of places you know they're very different from those so but uh, at kelso the, the the buyers are very responsive to them oh, and and you'd have 
adept of figures behind this sheet, probably more with the Texels uh, um, than maybe the New Zealand Suffolk. Have you got any records of lambing percentages and ease of lambing and that sort of thing? Have you gone that far down that route recording recording that as well? Uh, to be honest, we, we haven't. But what I would say is that we treat our Suffolk very much like our customers would treat their, their commercial flocks, um, you, you know, which we couldn't say 15 years ago. Um, we, we found ourselves living with them for nearly two months, you know, lambs that wouldn't suckle. Uh, the other thing that, that New Zealand genetics have offered us is uh, the, the removal of having to, to clean their, their back end so much. They're much tighter with their dung, and, and that, that's a big plus because that was without doubt one of the main reasons I think the Texels had such a foothold in the commercial uh, sector is that pe- nobody wants to have to clean lambs, and mm-hmm. the, the Suffolks are very, were very poor that way. Uh-huh. And, and going on with the Texels, you topped Kelsa sale, I think, in 2019. We're the top at 8,000, so you're there in the top there, and you think you were, for your pen of 30, 40, you were one of the top averages as well. Uh, John, you're not doing, you're not playing at this, not doing it by half. Um, we really, well, what we try to do is is breed a sheep that uh, lambs a little bit easier than, you know, they're a little bigger framed maybe than than a lot of the, what to say, the Lanark type of sheep. You know, they're, they're a little bigger framed. They're not quite so strong in the head, which uh, I think helps with the, the, the lambing. Um, but likewise, we try to get them so they grow very fast when they come out. It's much the same as our Angus, try to get them to grow fast and uh, you know achieve good confirmation, at the, good grades at the end. So, um, you know, at Kelso, it's a market that suits that type. People are looking for these bigger, stronger shearlings and... Uh, that, that works for us. But yeah. and, and as I said, you'll have the weight recording figures there and the sheep getting bigger. There is there such a thing as, as, as a texel being too big these days? Yes, I think there could be. R- really, our criteria is the, the, how quickly they get to slaughter weight, you know, and, and, and things. So um, I, I think there is a way to moderate their frame. Um, but likewise, I think you can get them too short and too small as well, mm-hmm. by, uh, quite easily. Truly, our, our thing is, is to try and get shearlings to uh, commercial lambs that'll grow quickly for guys and reach slaughter weight as quickly as possible. John Senior, you regularly contribute a very rounded article to the Scottish Farmer, uh, putting over your experience very well. It's always very readable. And uh, Do you sit on a few committees and you're putting a little bit of this uh, experience that you have back in, into other places? I don't know. I, I have been on oh, dozens of different committees, I think. John, is, are, you on, are you a committee man? I wouldn't like to be called a committee man, but <laughs> I do serve on one or two committees um, and things. I, I enjoy them. I, I think it gives guys, it gives you a real insight of, of the direction and it gives you input, obviously. So I, I, I do, I've sat on Angus Council a couple of times. I'm not currently on and uh, I'm, I'm now on the, the, the Texels at the moment. And so I'm not on too many, but uh, I, I do do the odd one, yeah. Uh-huh. And as time's moving on, I got one story I think our listeners might like to hear was the story of uh, Linton Gilbertine's Rocco, John. Can you tell me about that one? Because it might uh, make us giggle. Um, well, Rocco was uh, maybe the first bull that Gordon Brook actually bred that was really pretty good. And, and we, we saw him as a calf and we, we really thought he was just exceptional. So he went up to Richard Retty's and was, was prepared for Sterling. And he was the high seller in, in the October sale. And we, we, we bought him. He was actually an embryo out of one of our cows, a cow that we'd brought in from, from the U.S. So um, anyway, the, the bull is a lovely bull. And about two or three months after we had him back, and we, he hadn't mated with the cow at this point, um, there was some heifers bulling, and he, he jumped the fence and got his leg caught. 
and he, he severed tendons in the back of his heel. So we took him up to the Dick Vet in, in Edinburgh to get looked at, and uh, to, we left him there all day to see what surgery they could do. But they phoned me when I was back home to say, no, there's nothing we do this boy. is unfortunate we're going to have to put him down. And we were really devastated. It really were. We, we, we thought so much of the bull. So anyway, the vet up there says, well, we've actually done a procedure with horses where we, we can amputate their testicles and send them down to an outfit in Chester called, I think it's Stallion AI, where they can dissect the testicle and extract the semen. Um, so... It sounded pretty crazy. They, they told me that the chances of it working were quite slim, but they said that it's worth a shot if you want to do it. So I remember picking up the phone to dad who was at a funeral, and uh, I think he had somebody, a couple other people in the car on loudspeaker, and I phoned him and I told him, I said, look, this is the plan. <laughs> he was, uh, you, you know, probably like me, a little bit skeptical, but willing to give it a go. So, so um on the way back from the funeral, he swung around by the Dick Vet and collected a, a package of two testicles on ice and uh, brought them back to Roxburgh Mains. Well, the clock starts ticking as soon as you amputate the testicles. So we, we had to get that those testicles down to Stallion AI in Chester within, I think, eight hours of, of them being uh, removed from the bull. So so my dad brought the package down to, to Roxburgh Mains and then I took off through the night to take this, uh, this package down to Stallion AI at uh, Chester, um, where I met with a vet as soon as I arrived, and they did exactly the procedure. And it took a long time. I believe it's a four- or five-hour procedure to take the, the, the semen out. And So um, long and short visit, we, we got 86 straws of semen from the bull. And, um, yeah, we've had quite a lot of calves from the bull. And actually one of our main herd sires at the moment, Robert Luther, who we probably think maybe one of the best breeding bulls we have at the moment. He's uh, he's a son, so it's been a huge success, and uh, it made the front page of the Sun, and uh, I think it was featured in 26 other major publications in the UK. But uh, I think it's about the only good news story of, from farming that's ever made the front of the Sun. A brilliant story, and of course, there's no such thing as bad publicity for sure. <laughs> anyway, that was good. So yeah. Well. Thank you both, John Senior and Junior Elliot, for your time. I appreciate you talking to us about the successes at Rawburn on our Top Lines and Details podcast, and uh, I'm sure our listeners will be uh, most interested to hear what you've had to say. Thank you very much. Yeah, great. Thanks, Andy. We'll see you soon. Okay, thanks, Phil. Bye-bye, just now. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page, where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.